The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Leslie Picker here on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Today, former Richmond Fed President Jeff Lacker on why the market is pricing in too many rate cuts this year. Plus, the number one retail analyst on the street, appropriately named Matt Boss, joins <laughs> us. After a year on the sidelines, he's turning bullish on Dollar Tree. He'll make his case ahead. Consumer company Philips getting hit as this new FDA deal will mean it can no longer sell its sleep apnea machine. The CEO is going to join us to break down what's next. Take a look at the markets, though. Bit of a tight range as we uh, brace ourselves for everything that's headed our way. The macro data, uh, the earnings onslaught, uh, the jobs, jobs number on report. Friday, the, jo the Fed decision on Wednesday. It could be the busiest yes. week of the year so far. Yeah, uh, looking forward to that. But for the time being, NASDAQ is the sole index in the green. A lot of narratives for investors to focus on uh, this week, including that highly anticipated Fed meeting. While no one expects a cut this week, the market is expecting more than four cuts for the rest of the year. Our next guest says those expectations may be too high. Joining us this morning, former Richmond Fed president and senior affiliated scholar at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, Jeffrey Lacker. Jeff, welcome back. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Carl. Great to be here. We've been sort of uh, taking in commentary from former Fed officials, uh, I think Evans and Bullard. Um, give us your take on where you see market expectations right now. I think there's a, an excessive optimism that's uh, spread in the market, um, and I think that some of that may have spilled over to the committee itself. I think that the Fed was very fortunate last year to have inflation come down as rapidly and as far as it did, uh, but they're by no means done yet. Uh, you've got strong real spending growth, um, as shown in the third quarter, and now the fourth quarter GDP report continuing. No signs of recession. Uh, wage growth is still not consistent with a 2% inflation rate. You'll see average hourly earnings numbers in the employment report on Friday, but those are contaminated by very serious composition effects, composition shifting over a time over time in a way that distorts the number. The more the Indicators that back that out, like the ECI and the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta wage tracker, uh, show in, uh, wage inflation still not consistent with 2% inflation. And it's still not obvious that it, inflation expectations have come down uh, all the way to being consistent with 2%. And they're certainly not anchored. So I think standing pat should be the watchword. That should be the default scenario, at least through the middle of the year, barring any uh, sudden big surprise uh, shock to the economy. Uh, the, the equity bulls are entranced by this six-month annualized figure where it shows we've essentially been at target for whatever it is, six or seven of the past few uh, of the past seven months. Um, I'm looking at a note this morning warning us that sometimes those figures can be revised higher as they were back in 03. Is that something to watch? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a big CPI revision coming, and that data is the groundwork for the, the PCE inflation number. Um, in addition, you have residual seasonality you have to worry about. The process of backing out seasonal factors is imperfect and sometimes gets a little polluted from time to time. And a set of months in the year can be stronger or weaker than average. So, yeah, and besides, it's going to take a, a, a year or two 
uh, for them to feel uh, confident about uh, inflation having returned to 2%. So, yeah, I, I, again, I think that the markets are getting a little ahead of themselves here. Jeff, what do you think uh, in terms of a recession this year? Uh, do you believe that we have averted some sort of hard landing at this point? Uh, and if so, is it still likely that we get uh, so many rate cuts as the market is anticipating? Uh, so I, I don't see any signs of a recession on the horizon. Um, I'm wary of aeronautical metaphors, all metaphors really for monetary policy, um, to paraphrase. To paraphrase an old saying about the price of freedom, I think that the um, eternal vigilance is the price for a central bank uh, of maintaining price stability. Um, so I think that's especially true given the episode the Fed's come through. Uh, this was a significant failure of monetary policy for to have inflation deviate so far and so, for so long from target. I think the Fed's credibility is damaged. I think that they should avoid declaring victory or declaring that they've landed and are take taxiing to the you know the gate or any of that <laughs> stuff i think the, the watchword for them is going to have to be reestablishing uh their credibility and, and re-anchoring uh inflation expectations and it's still you know for the foreseeable future their credibility and the 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 uh, anchoring of inflation is going to be a tentative matter and they're going to have to be on, on their game, and they don't want to reverse course, so I think they're going to be averse to cutting rates um, too soon. Not to uh, continue the metaphor that I know you, you despise, uh, but if you kind of <laughs> think fun. about the, the different bolts on the doors and the key indicators uh, that you think they should be watching, that you're watching, what would they be? Bolts on the door. Is that another aeronautical <laughs> metaphor to a Boeing <laughs> well, door thinking, or something? You know, with regard to Boeing and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, at the end of the day, it's about the inflation numbers and then them coming in, uh, you know, on a sustainable basis, very close to 2%. Um, I think if they come in around 3%, and that seems plausible, consisting with the current outlook, uh, you know, if, if they come in around 3% for a year, they're going to they're gonna need to think about whether they need to take stronger action. And so I think they're wary of, of things getting entrenched a, a bit above 2%, maybe not 5%, but 3% inflation uh, for a while. And I, I think that would be a hard case for them towards the end of the year. Hey, finally, Jeff, uh, over the weekend, the journal quotes Esther George, just talking about the labor market, how it's often tricky. And when it does stumble, it tends to stumble hard. Goldman, which by the way, is in the March camp, wrote over the weekend, the labor market could still provide additional reasons to cut sooner rather than later. I mean, how, how vigilant do we have to be on labor weakness? Oh, you know, always. Uh, but uh, you, you look at initial claims, you look at vacancies uh, relative to unemployed, and uh, th there isn't any sign of a break, you know, of, a, of, a, of a, a dip coming in labor market conditions. So, yeah, I think, I think things look fine on the labor market front. Yeah, hard to argue when claims roll in every Thursday. Uh, Jeff, appreciate yeah. it uh, very much as we await the, the decision this week. Uh, Jeffrey Lacker, Fed, pleasure, Richmond Fed President. Thanks. Let's turn to the airlines. Ryanair backing Boeing this morning. Meanwhile, the JetBlue Spirit merger remains in limbo. Phil LeBeau has more on both of those stories. Phil, never a dull day on your beat. 
No, and it's been busy, particularly lately, Les. Let's start first off with Ryanair, which reported its results early this morning. And while the results were shy of expectations with regard to the last quarter, the company also gave some guidance, narrowed the profit guidance, but didn't lower it. They just narrowed it. And then there's the question of what happens with Ryanair's 150 737 MAX 10s that they have ordered. It's a huge order that they start taking delivery in 2027. As you take a look at shares of Boeing, we should point out that on the conference call today, Michael O'Leary, the CEO of Ryanair, has been emphatic that they stand by Boeing. And then on Squawk Box this morning, the CFO, uh, Neil Sorohan, listen to what he had to say about their confidence in Boeing. I think that Dave Calhoun and Brian West are doing a very good job in in turning things around in Boeing. I think quality, while it needs uh, to go further, has improved. We've always been willing and able uh, to take aircraft um, if, if the, you know, the, the price is right. All right, let's shift gears and quickly talk about JetBlue as you take a look at shares. Remember, they report their quarterly results tomorrow. We bring this up because they put out an 8K on Friday saying that they are evaluating their merger options and that the window for them to make some type of a decision if they want to alter it or end that agreement That opened up on Sunday, but we have not heard anything from the company since then. By the way, once they made that announcement on Friday, Spirit put out an 8K saying, we plan to stick with this merger and we expect JetBlue to stick by it as well. We'll see if they have anything to say about this when they report their Q4 results tomorrow morning. JetBlue reports its Q4 results. Leslie, back to you. Potentially unrequited love there. Uh, Phil, thank you. Up next, more on the risks positive economic data pose to rate cuts and why one strategist says the U.S. is heading toward a recession. Plus, the CEO of consumer products company Philips and FDA settlement over the sale of sleep apnea machines in the U.S. weighing heavily on shares. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Executive departure Goldman Sachs to report Jim Esposito, the co-head of the firm's global banking and markets division, is leaving Goldman in the next few months after over 30 years at the company. Esposito was thought to be a part of a handful of senior executives that could one day replace David Solomon as CEO. But Solomon has indicated he won't be stepping down anytime soon. That, of course, is according to reporting in The Wall Street Journal, which I think could be the newsworthy aspect of today's story, this idea as we kind of look across Wall Street. There were some there was some chatter last year, um, you know, amid all of that negative press that Solomon was receiving. You know, does he have the full confidence of the board? Does he plan to stay amid, you know, all of this uh, negative press and some kind of dicey earnings reports? And so the fact that things have really turned around, the 
Fourth quarter earnings were stronger than many had expected, a pretty solid quarter overall. Um, and now this news that he's indicated, at least to top executives, according to people familiar with the matter, uh, that the journal reported uh, that he plans to stick around for some time, I think is, is noteworthy for the street, at least. Goldman shares not really doing too much on this news, but um, certainly one to watch. Almost some two-year highs after the print uh, right. a couple weeks ago. And then you had Ted Pick, Ted Pick is in position at Morgan Stanley. Mm -hmm. This shuffle over at JPM last week got some eyeballs, too. Exactly. Right. It's definitely that time of year, bonuses being awarded, um, and, you know, just trying to kind of figure out those succession plans on Wall Street, which aren't always easy. People look at Morgan Stanley, you bring that up, and rightfully so, uh, because there were three contenders in that race, and only one got the job. Now, the three were awarded these special bonuses as being part of the you know the process by which they chose the successor uh, but oftentimes you see this where if people are gunning for that top job don't get it they leave the firm and so um, it's kind of a matter of who you want to keep close I mean Jim Esposito had been there for 30 years uh, maybe looking to do something else uh, with his with the next stage of his yes. career um, but from a firm standpoint it's it's definitely interesting uh, you know, the, the different moving pieces of the chessboard. Yes, that's on one of the Street. hardest things to do. <laughs> it is, indeed. Let's turn to the markets. Our next guest is betting that a rally is, head, is ahead for Treasuries, and we could get a downside for equities. Joining us now, Kamal Sri Kumar, president of Sri Kumar Global Strategies and former chief global strategist for TCW. Thank you for being here, Sri. Um, explain, explain that thinking for us. What, what would be the, the driver of those two markets? The driver here, and I think the consumers are said to be a very strong part of the economy right now, Leslie. I put out a report on Saturday saying that is where actually a serious weakness lies. Consumer spending is supporting the U.S. economy, but consumer spending has been rising faster than income. And in the four largest U.S. banks, credit card loans rose even faster than consumer spending. So the consumers are essentially spending as a result of borrowing. And I think that is where I think the weakness lies. Second, I think the banking situation is still not stabilized. The bank's deposits which fell after last March are still continuing to be at relatively low levels. And that is the second area of danger. I worry about the commercial real estate situation. Any of those could cause a recession and could in turn cause the Fed to cut interest rates. The crucial point here is the Fed rate cuts are coming, but not because inflation is vanquished, but because something is going to fail in the system. Sri, all of those different factors that you mentioned, some would have said a year ago could be cause for a recession or 10 months ago could have been cause for a recession, but we haven't seen it yet. Why do you think that is, uh, especially with rates where they are and, and tightening in the system? Uh, we haven't seen too much of a fallout from all of that yet, and some are wondering whether we ever will. That's a great question, Leslie. What happened a year ago, say March, you would have expected something like a recession to follow from the regional banking crisis. But I think the Federal Reserve stepped in, stopped quantitative tightening, switched over in a big way to quantitative easing. And that, in turn, served the system. The question is, you can do that once. Are you going to do it a second or a third time? Second point in answer to your question. We have had immense amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus. Toward the end of 2022, it was estimated that 
trillion dollars worth of excess fiscal surplus was in consumer hands. And that also supported the economy in a way it hasn't done in past recessions. Look at the fiscal deficit. Look at the amount of debt the U.S. government has. And that is what has supported the economy so far. But that's what you call running on fumes. You can't support that way indefinitely. Sri, there's a good piece in the journal today basically arguing maybe a little bit of easing now allows you to avoid having to ease big time later on. Is that the way you think about it, or is it more you want to save your dry powder for when emergencies do come and you need some room for an insurance cut? Paul, I uh, go with the second point. I read the Wall Street Journal article, and I think to ease now in preparation for not easing too much later on, which was the thrust of that article, to me uh, is is a very uh, tough proposition. That, in turn, could not lead to the stop-and-go inflation measures that we adopted in the 1970s. And that is what makes inflation longer-lasting. We did not have a good run in the 1970s. And there is no reason to repeat that now, as the Wall Street Journal would suggest that we do. Hmm. Yeah, that stickiness question certainly a key one, Sri. Thank you. Thank you very much, Leslie. Meantime, uh, one company not as concerned about a U.S. recession is LVMH, the high-end retailer pushing into a new market, showing it off at a giant mansion on Star Island in Miami. And no surprise, that's where we find our Robert Frank. Morning, Robert. Carl, LVMH making a huge splash in Miami this week as part of its battle for the $30 billion luxury watch industry. We're going to take you inside the LVMH mansion and marketing machine. Coming up after the break. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. European markets edging lower this morning after hitting two-year highs in Friday's session as financial sector losses weigh on equities. Despite oil rising this morning, Goldman says prices could fall and in response cut their profit growth outlook for the blue chip stock 600 index from 3% or 2-3% from 7%. For 2024, the equity struggle comes as ECB officials offer mixed commentary on when to expect rate cuts. Slovakia's central bank chief says that April or June is mostly likely there. Portugal's Mario Centeno say, saying cuts could come sooner than May, but will likely be more gradual. And the ECB vice president was more neutral, hesitating to offer a clear answer on timing. On the other side of the world, China Evergrande is being ordered by a Hong Kong court to liquidate the world's most indebted developer with more than $300 billion in liabilities has been unable to offer a restructuring plan more than two years after defaulting on its offshore debt, with Justice Linda Chan saying, quote, it's time for the court to say enough is enough. Kind of a remarkable chain of events with Evergrande, of course, this feeling like it's kind of coming to a head at this point. Shares down dramatically, double digits, 20 percent in in Hong Kong trading. Uh, Again, uh, property indebtedness, uh, unemployment, capital markets falling. China's getting it on all sides. Uh, We're watching it very closely. Meantime, bit of a waiting game here as uh, the week really heats up uh, in the coming days. Let's get post to post with Bob Pisani. Hey, Bob. Uh, Carl, uh, kind of a flat 
day. Not a lot of trends, but it's going to be a big week. We've got the Fed meeting uh, on Wednesday with the announcement uh, and looking for direction on whether there'll be a rate cut in March. That'll be the big story. Uh, and then we've got about 20% of the S&P 500 reporting, including almost a quarter of the Dow. So we're going to have Boeing. Uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of different companies out there. Apple, Microsoft, Honeywell, Chevron. And this one here, which Merck, which has just been a monster this year, it did not have a very good middle part of the year, rallied in November and December, did hit a new high. It's at a new high, actually, it just went negative here. But this is one of the big momentum names uh, in the S&P 500 in the month of January. It's up yeah, maybe 9% or so, so we'll get some comments from them. Uh, then elsewhere, the trend still is up on big cap technology. So we have new highs on a number of these names out there. Uh, uh, Microsoft uh, as well sitting there. Uh, Meta's at a new high. And I keep pointing out these big cap software companies that keep hitting new highs. ServiceNow, another one uh, today at a new high. A big rare down day on Friday. It was down just a little bit. Uh, but generally, it's been very strong throughout the whole year. Uh, historic high. Uh, there as well recently. Salesforce, another one. Dow Components doing really well recently. That was at a two-year high uh, as well. So generally the movement in big cap tech uh, continues. Now we had a new listing here on the New York Stock Exchange today, which we talked about earlier. We had Gronkowski on earlier. I hope you saw that. We have the CEO uh, as well. And this is Flutter. Uh, this is not an IPO. People keep asking me about this. This is not an offering of new shares here. It's just a dual list listing with the New York Stock Exchange and with London. So they're registering shares on the U.S. Uh, on the U.S. on the New York Stock Exchange. So. Foreign shareholders, you can easily buy and sell shares here in New York as well as London, but it's not an offering of new shares here. It's not really uh, an IPO. It's just, we'll call it, let's just call it an NYSC uh, listing. The listings we've had recently have been some real disappointments in the IPO front. Uh, we had uh, Bright Spring uh, yes, uh, on Friday, and that was a little bit of a disappointment. We're going to have a big one this week. Air uh, Amra Sports here, which is one of the international sports brands, big sports brands, uh, including Wilson, some of the other big ones like Arcteryx, big outdoor uh, uh, outerwear maker. Uh, we're waiting for them. That'll be should be trading on Thursday, pricing Wednesday night, 100 million shares, 16 to 18. So that's pretty significant. They'll raise about $1.7 billion, maybe have an eight, eight and a half billion dollar market cap. We'll see how that trades. But again, we are waiting for a big breakout. We hear people are interested in going uh, IPOing. We have dozens of names sitting out there. But so far, the performance, aftermarket performance for most of these have been a real disappointment. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob, we'll watch it. Uh, Bob Asani, thank you. Let's get a news update as well this morning with Silvana Hanau. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Carl, good morning. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin returned to the Pentagon today nearly a month after being secretly admitted to the hospital for complications from an undisclosed prostate cancer surgery. He began a bilateral meeting with the NATO Secretary General by giving comments on the drone attack on a small U.S. outpost in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops and injured dozens more. Austin said he and President Biden will not tolerate the attacks. The former South Carolina attorney convicted of killing his wife and youngest son will make his case today to be retried. His legal team claims the clerk of court tampered with the jury that found him guilty in the murders. He was later sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. And French farmers snarled traffic around Paris today as they formed a blockade on major roadways around the city. They're lodging a protest against government regulations and calling for an end to environmental policies they say are making them less competitive with other countries. Leslie? Silvana, thank you.
The CEO of consumer products company Philips is after the break in FDA settlement over the sale of, of a sleep apnea machine in the U.S. weighing on results. Stay with us. Take a look at shares of Philips lower this morning after reporting a miss on both revenue and earnings in Q4. But the bigger story weighing on the stock, the company announcing a deal with the FDA to suspend sales of sleep apnea machines in the U.S. following a recall of millions of devices that began back in 2021. Joining us now to break it all down, uh, Philips CEO Roy Jacobs. Roy, thank you for being here. Um, so what conditions does Philips need to meet and how long do you believe it will take for your company to resume selling these devices? Yeah, so maybe it's good to start with, the, with indeed the news of today. And what we announced on one hand was strong results on full year 2023. We had very strong sales with 7% growth. We had strong EBITDA improvement of 310 basis points. And we had very strong cash generation of 1.6 billion in the year versus targets that we set out early in the year, which were much lower. We also announced that indeed we agreed to terms that were set forth by the FDA for a consent decree on the Philips Respironics business in the US. As part of that, that gives us clarity for a roadmap to comply as well as to restore the business. So we will work diligently on that. And based upon the clarity on the consent decree, we were also able to reconfirm that actually the plan that we put out there for 2023 to 2025 we are fully committed to including any consequences of the consent degree so that operational overhang is included in there and we committed to deliver three to five percent of sales growth in 2024 a further profit improvement to 11 and 11.5 percent and a strong cash generation also in 24 of 800 to 1 billion uh, of cash in the year. So we keep executing our plan and that now includes the clarity that the consent decree provides us. What about the devices that were sold in say 2022, 2023? Do you have to recall those? Are those safe for customers to continue using? Yes, the devices that we are having in the market in the US are safe to use. And actually we have millions of patients that we service every day. What's also part of the concert degree is that we will continue to serve them with patient interfaces, the masks, the tubes and accessories. What is part of the um, agreement is that we will not sell new devices until we have fully complied with the measure, uh, measures we agree with the FDA. So that's something that is uh, a target that we will work through very digitally. We have a team fully uh, lined up for that. But if you look to the totality of Philips, which is 18 billion, the sleep and respiratory care business is 1 billion out of that. And what we presented today with that clarity on a consent degree is that over the totality of the 18 billion, we will deliver the three to 5% growth next year or this year, and we will deliver the profit improvement and the cash that we early committed to. Of course, we will work through all the patient remediation. And actually in the US, we have done 99% of remediation. So actually we did recall, we did replace, and we have many patients using our devices safely every day to help them in their treatment of their sleep apnea challenges. And we will continue also to service them. And outside of the US, we will continue to grow the business and service also new patients as part of the agreement. So sales growth and margin and cash flow and all that guidance remains unchanged. Does it have any broader impact on perhaps R&D or CapEx budgets? Now, what we did guide for is that actually it will have a cost implication of 100 pips in the year 2024, but actually that we have accounted for. So actually in the 
plan guidance that we put out for the 3 to 5% growth and the profit improvement and cash, actually this cost is included. Now, what is clear that we will put our resources aside to make sure that actually we fully comply, we restore the business, but most importantly, we really service the healthcare system in the US and the patients in the US with our best solutions. And the partnership deal that actually we agreed and also we published with NYU Langone Health in New York is a great example because many patients in the US do not have the best access to care and to the right care at this moment. And our technology solutions, whether it's in diagnostic imaging, whether it's in monitoring and enterprise informatics, help them to provide better care to these patients in the US across um, all the states. And this is a great example in New York, but we will do that with many other customers and partners. And we will continue to really focus on making an impact on patients and consumers in the US, but also globally. Given uh, the, the school of thought uh, that some GLP-1 drugs, some weight loss drugs could have um, a range of effects on uncertain diseases, including sleep apnea, given what's going on with the FDA, how committed are you to stay in this space uh, for the long run? Yeah, great question. We are fully committed to staying in the sleep and respiratory care business. We believe that this is a patient population that needs to be served with great innovations and CPAP and BiPAPs are still the prime solution for them. GLP-1 will help because obesity is a contributing factor, but the average patient that use and has a sleep apnea device has five comorbidities. So actually this helps to take maybe or lesser one of those, but actually the rest do still need a lot of treatment. And also there's a great population out there that's underserved. So we keep focusing on getting them the best care. Hopefully GLP-1 will help. I think that would be great for patients because we want them to be in the best possible health condition. But we know that many will still uh, need this and therefore we stay committed. And also we serve many patients every day in that space already here and now, and actually we'll continue to do so in future. Hey, finally, Roy. Um Street's very much interested in supply disruptions, watching activity in the Red Sea and elsewhere. Uh, a lot of questions about supply chain preparedness and whether or not there are playbooks from COVID that are being implemented now, uh, even though the disruptions might be not as large. Yeah, it's a great question. And actually, it's indeed very true that we learned from COVID to be better prepared for these kind of disruptions. So one of the parts of the plan that I put out last year was my second priority was improving supply chain reliability. So actually we did a lot of work of making our supply chain more resilient to be able to adapt in an agile way to these fast changing conditions that we learn, unfortunately, that can happen every day. And therefore the Red Sea implications are there, we are managing them and they're part of our guidance. So of course they have an implication for uh, the sea freight that goes through it, but actually we are well catered for alternatives and make sure that actually we can continue to provide and dial up also the growth for our patients, consumers and customers globally, despite some of these challenges that will interrupt the supply chain globally. But we have the alternatives in place. Mm. Roy, thank you very much. Appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Meantime, J.P. Morgan upgrading Dollar Tree today. The street's top retail analyst, Matt Boss, going to join us after the break on that call when Money Movers continues in a moment. Welcome back. A note from the desk of J.P. Morgan sending shares at Dollar Tree higher today. The firm upgrading the stock to overweight, target of 157. Store closures in a growing total addressable market, just some of the catalysts there. Uh, shares are jumping this morning, but down about 10% in the past year. The analyst behind that call joins us this morning, J.P. Morgan's Matt Boss, who, as you know, is an Institutional Investor Hall of Famer. Matt, great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Um, I hope you won't mind me starting with just your macro setup, which kind of sounds a bit constructive, no? 
Yeah, look, I think it's interesting. You could not have had a worse backdrop for the low-income consumer in 2023. I, I think 2023 could be a 2024 could be a year of stabilization. You think about the tax refund hit last year, the cut to food stamps, on top of the fact that you had, you had double-digit food inflation for really two years for that low-income consumer. I think you may be seeing signs of inflation having peaked, as well as child tax care credit opportunity potentially from Congress. You are now through, as you exit the front half of the year, some of the student loan repayments. So I think you could not have had more uphill sledding for this low-income consumer, but now I think that's in the base. And that leads you to some of the Dollar Tree stores. This is a, a function where you go to where the stressed consumer will look to shop. So it's value and convenience, Carl. To me, that's really the playbook here. And what we're looking for is self-help. So the breaking the buck, the expansion of the multi-price points for Dollar Tree, I think sets up this concept very well to take share in the next couple of years. Uh, as I look across the space, Five Below, to me, has a very nice algorithm of new customer acquisition. We also like off-price. So TJX, Ross stores in Burlington. So it's that combination of where the consumer can find name brands, but at a great value that's also convenient. Uh, and I think what you're seeing is the potential where low-income consumer stabilizes, but middle-income consumer still looking for value. So I think you have that combination of trade down from the middle income, but what would be new would be more a stable backdrop at the low end. So you mentioned kind of an expanding total addressable market uh, for this group. How do they compete with, say, the Amazons of the world and some of the other lower price uh, e-commerce retailers out there? Right. So it's a good question, Leslie. So as you think about the, the lower end consumer, uh, there is an absolute buy now, wear now, need now uh, component to this. And so milk, eggs and cereal is the consumable side of a dollar tree. What's new is the introduction of the multi price points in that they benefit from the treasure hunt. They, they, you never know what you're going to find. That's also the off price model, TJX, Ross and, and Burlington. But what's new for a Dollar Tree is by bringing in the three or the four or the five dollar items, you can complete a category. Uh, and so I think the share that you're seeing from Dollar Tree's side is actually the more affluent customer. The last six quarters, the fastest growing since breaking the buck has been the customer with a household income of 150000 and up. We were just talking uh, with the CEO of Philips about, you know, overall supply chain challenges. How about this group? Do they face similar supply chain challenges in order to keep their prices at a reasonable price point for the lower income consumer? So I'm glad you brought it up because inflation for the last two years has actually been a headwind for fixed price point retailers. That would be Dollar Tree and Five Below, meaning they actually had to work to get the price out the door, given that it's the same, they had to manipulate the margins on the back end. And so they had to discontinue some items. Uh, and some of those were high traffic driving items, or they had to change the quality or even the quantity that the consumer would get in order to maintain profitable margins uh, out the door. The reversal could be the case in a, in a scenario where we saw a moderation in inflation or even deflation in that I think there's the opportunity to invest in quality, quantity, and provide the consumer more at that same price point. So I think it could be a nice top line driver 
for Dollar Tree, uh, as well as for Five Below. I think to your point on, on the sourcing side, look, the Red Sea is obviously very hot button. You are absolutely seeing sourcing costs rise. Uh, but this back-end model, especially with uh, the, the, uh, the greater flexibility from a pricing perspective, as now with the multi-price point introduction at the Dollar Tree banner, it provides that company more flexibility moving forward uh, than they did uh, the last time around that we mm. faced this. Matt, does this call mean that you need to take a look at re-rating some of the names in specialty where ostensibly in an on-fire economy you would have gone to look for brands? It's a good question, Carl. What we're looking for is value convenience, so that would be off-pricers, and then self-help on the discount side, and then best-in-class brands. And I think you can bifurcate that as well. Self-help for us within the best-in-class brands would be Tapestry, PVH, uh, and Nike, and then I think for compounding continued growth, that's where I would put a Lululemon, a Birkenstock, a Ralph Lauren. Uh, so I think there's opportunity. I don't think the consumer uh, was in as bad of a place as maybe, you know, maybe six months ago the, uh, the market perceived. Uh, but I also wouldn't run with some of the holiday numbers either <laughs> relative to expectations. So that's why our focus continues to be on self-help. Um, but I do think you may be seeing as a theme some potential stabilization at the low end in 2024. Wow. Uh, when, you, when you say it, uh, Matt, gets a lot of attention. I appreciate you sharing it with us here on Money Movers. Thanks so much, Matt Thanks Boss. for having me back. Up next, from the dollar store to the luxury consumer, LVMH looks to the watch market for its next leg of growth. We're live in Miami. Plus, a look ahead to Alphabet's earnings report as another competitor tries to take them on in search. Stay with us. A monster week of earnings for tech this week with Alphabet set to report tomorrow after the bell. But Google's dominance in search might now be under some pressure as new AI-powered search startups begin cropping up. Our Deirdre Bosa has that in today's Tech Check. Hey, Dee. Hey, Carl. Good morning. So Google search, let's be real, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But hanging over every earnings quarter over the last year or so, basically since ChatGPT exploded onto the scene, is this existential question. Can Google innovate fast enough in the age of generative AI, or is Gen AI the first notable threat to search in decades? So that is front and center again when Alphabet reports tomorrow. B of A writes, with AI positioning as the top debate on the stock, we see 2024 as a crucial year for Google, which could help establish it as either an AI leader or at risk for for further search erosion. Now, further search erosion, that'll be tough. This is what the market for search engines has looked like over the past year. Even a Microsoft ChatGPT-powered Bing search engine has barely dented Google's dominance. And others like DuckDuckGo, which offers better privacy controls, they have been unsuccessful. But there is a new crop of Gen AI native upstarts making a run at the king. That means that they've been developed and built in this age of Gen AI. Neither, they wouldn't register either on a market share chart, but they are reimagining search as a whole. We've talked about perplexity, backed by the likes of Jeff Bezos and NVIDIA. Another one is ARC, which released ARC Search over the weekend. We tried it out this morning, searching Paris Olympics as an example. Here it is, reading six web pages and then neatly laying out dates, host city, new sports, among some of the other facts, no ads, and a pretty clean user interface. Let's also show you a traditional Google search on a smartphone. You've got at the top a list of Twitter or X accounts and a lot of the same information 
information when you scroll down, but it is notably more cluttered and harder to find. Now, Google's generative AI experimental search, which is available for some users, it does give you a much cleaner response, similar to that of ARCs and perplexities. But the point is that Google isn't willing to go all in yet and potentially cannibalize its business, its search business, before it figures out how to incorporate advertising, its golden goose. So the street is expecting Google to report $65.8 billion in ad revenue this past quarter, and that is nearly 80% of total sales. So that alone tells you how important it is. And as Microsoft is putting some hard numbers on its AI product, Copilot, investors, they're going to want the same from Google. TBD, if we get it, we do have the the most advanced version of Gemini coming out, which could be interesting. But Google still has kind of a prove-it case, has to prove it to Wall Street. It's pretty remarkable, Deirdre. I mean, especially when you consider, remember, Ask Jeeves, all of the search engines that went uh, to the wayside once Google took dominance there. Uh, How much commentary do you expect on the conference call as it pertains to this product? Do they give kind of concrete numbers on expenses and, uh, you know, what they're looking forward to in terms of applications for Gen AI? Well, expenses is kind of like the magic word this quarter, right? Because as we start off 2024, no one has been as sort of cutting as much and as efficient as Google is trying to be. We've got rounds and rounds of layoffs, and there's this idea that it's marshalling resources towards that generative AI shift. But in terms of revenue, what they're actually going to show for it, that's certainly what the street wants. I expect lots of questions in that regard. Will Google actually give something? I'm not sure because they're not really charging for BARD. It could show up in the cloud numbers. Um, we, they will charge for that highest version of Gemini. So that could be something there. But that's really, like B of A says, that's kind of the debate for Google this year. Can they actually turn what they've been talking about and this leadership they've had for years in generative AI into actual numbers? Yeah, it's interesting. Everyone said 2023 is kind of like the possibility year, 2024. Okay, let's put this into practice and see it yeah. actually trickle through when into the margins. Hits the rubber That's absolutely it. People want apps and they want numbers. (laughs) So we'll see how much more patience the market has. Deirdre, thank you. Turning to the luxury retail sector, LVMH looking to the watch market for its next leg, or wrist of growth, we should say. Uh, Robert Franks on Star Island in Miami with a closer look. Hi, Robert. Leslie, LVMH renting out this $50 million mansion to Miami as part of the Global Watch Wars. Global sales of luxury watches reaching $28 billion last year, expected to reach $37 billion over the next decade. LVMH already owns 10 watch brands, including Zenith, Hublot, and Tag Heuer. What they really want to do is join that top tier that includes Rolex and Patek Philippe. Like most of luxury right now, it is the wealthiest consumers, the very high-end that are spending the most and are the biggest targets. And therefore, the high end has been really one of the main drivers of our growth. I think the, the wealthy people more than ever are eager to invest into authentic, reputable and timeless brands. Today marks the start of LVMH Watch Week, the first ever here in the U.S. All the executives, CEOs for each of the brands are flying in to unlaunch, to launch their latest models. They range from 2,000 to 2 million. So we're going to see a lot of those watches today. And interestingly, guys, the fastest growing part of luxury watches right now are women's watches. So that's a big theme we're seeing with all these new models. Hey, Robert, we just had LVMH's numbers, uh, 10% organic growth. We got good uh, stuff out of Remy. Uh, how do we square that with uh, things that are, like, for example, that Burberry's saying about the global economy? 
Yeah, Carl, it's very company specific right now. You've got those that are executing well that really justify the prices that they're charging for their products. And then Burberry, which just launched a new line with very high prices, untested yet from a design perspective. And then even within segments, watches is sort of one of the weaker sectors right now. But jewelry is doing well and leather goods are so it's really company and sector specific right now. But by and large, the luxury consumer globally, even in China, is holding up well. Yeah, remarkable to hear that about uh, China in particular. Uh, Robert, thank you so much. Uh, tough assignment for you, but we appreciate uh, the effort out there in Miami. Although he always looks so smooth and he fits right into that party scene, He right? really yes. does. Star I'm around. always surprised he comes back to New York <laughs> <laughs> afterward. Things are going to heat up tomorrow with Conference Board. We'll get some industrial earnings. Of course, we mentioned the big te- mega cap tech earnings tomorrow. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.